Take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, I'm just going to read the first four verses of this chapter. The text says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those uh, which exist are established by God. Verse 2, Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Well, as you know, last week we set aside our study in the book of John, and we turned our attention here to the book of uh, Romans because we're trying to build a uh, uh, biblical understanding of the role of government and then our responsibility as believers to governmental authorities. Now, obviously, we live in a time where the culture has taken, I guess you could describe it as a nosedive, uh, into greater and greater uh, evil, greater and greater debauchery, violence, corruption, anarchy are all around us. And the culture has taken a distinctively anti-Christian turn uh, in attitude and in agenda. Uh, the Christian worldview that was somewhat of an undergirding of this country is gone. Uh, there was a time when almost everybody in this country could name at least one of the Ten Commandments. That's long past. Uh, most people, if you were to ask them, I, I would suggest most people don't even know what the Ten Commandments are. Uh, There was a time when, uh, not too many years ago, most people uniformly disapproved of homosexuality, adultery, divorce, believing that sexual promiscuity was wrong. Uh, They disdained uh, uh, profanity. They saw abortion as unthinkable. Uh, uh, Public officials were held to a high uh, standard of both both morally and ethically. But again, times have changed. Uh, Christian influence... scriptural standards that again once shaped this country and western culture have given way to rapid uh, rabid secularism uh, practical atheism moral relativism and, and as a result we're living in an increasingly increasingly pagan society a reason uh, has been completely thrown out uh, of the door rational truth uh, is gone and at the same time as the culture is running as fast as it can and far away as it can from those things that are honorable, noble, true, and God-honoring, uh, our political leaders and legislative body, bodies are increasingly adopting laws uh, uh, and uh, through judicial ruling, uh, rulings, anti-Christian attitudes, anti-Christian agendas, uh, not only uh, sanctioning what used to be called quote-unquote alternative lifestyles, meaning homosexuality, but our government has actually uh, actively promoted, extolled, lifted up, and uh, um, uh, gives permission for or uh, uh, accommodation to same-sex unions, not only approving of the relationships, but obviously uh, redefining marriage. Uh, uh, not only that, we're in the process of redefining male and female, uh, trying to turn over the created order, trying to redefine gender. I asked somebody the other day how many genders uh, there were, and they unbelievably said two, and I said, are you kidding me? Uh, the last time I read, there was 157. So you need to get up with, uh, with the times, right? 157, I looked them up, Online, I couldn't even read some of the names. That just made no sense whatsoever, right? So we're redefining gender, redefining sex. Uh, some schools even want to eliminate uh, uh, the terms mom or dad or boy or girl. Uh, we're uh, being commanded at the same time to believe 
somehow that transgenderism is normal, and if we don't support that idea, if we don't believe that somehow a, a man can be trapped inside a woman's body or a woman trapped inside a man's body, uh, and that uh, and, and that uh, idea should be promoted and again accepted as normal, uh, and we should accept as normal the mutilation of people's bodies, even little children who are struggling with that issue, either through surgery or hormone therapy, and, and uh, again, trying to externally um, transform whom they are uh, on the DNA level. Now, if we don't believe that, if we don't affirm all of this, uh, then we're some kind of bigots. We're some kind of people of hatred. Uh, we need to be, at the very least, re-educated, if not completely removed from, from uh, society for our intolerant views of other people's uh, so-called rights. In fact, just this last week, uh, Canada keeps getting on the radar here, but Canada, there was a man who is jailed, and as far as I know, he's still in jail, and you know what his crime is? His crime was actually calling his daughter his daughter because she, at 13, has some kind of confusion at this issue. She thinks she's a boy and wants to have surgery to reassign herself, and he's saying, no, we're not going to allow that. The court has stepped in and taken custody rights away from him and uh, is executing the rights of the 13-year-old over the parent and has, in fact, locked his daughter up for calling her his daughter. I mean, that's where we're at. You know, and, and we see all this stuff going on. We realize that, again, it's nothing more than what I've told you. It's really nothing more than the, the outworking of a depraved mind out of Romans 1, a mind that no longer acknowledges God. Therefore, God has given that mind over to uh, a, a reality that it does not function properly. It's a kind of insanity. It's a kind of insanity that does not accept reality. But the modern problem is now that we have a government that is making laws to make the insane feel normal and to punish those who can still see reality. But that's the way it is in the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness, the evil kingdom that Satan rules over, the whole world, the scripture says, lies in his power. And he promotes nothing but lies. Whenever he speaks, he speaks lies. That's his nature. He's a liar and a murderer. He's the father of lies. And his task is to do everything he can to destroy humanity and to separate men from God in that relationship. Now, the only threat to his kingdom is one. The only threat to his kingdom is the truth. Right? His, the only threat to the kingdom of lies is the truth. But the further and further a society drifts away from the truth, the more it will hate those who are truth-tellers. We live in a time very much like Isaiah uh, spoke of in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verse 20, where he called it a world that calls evil good and, and, and good evil, a, a world that substitutes uh, uh, darkness for light and light for darkness, that substitutes sweet for bitter and, su and bitter for sweet. It's an evil kingdom that switches everything. It's an evil kingdom that turns everything upside down. The pronouncement of God upon this kind of a culture and this kind of world and this kind of thinking is woe. Right? It, it, it's a pronouncement of judgment. So we're living, obviously, in a time of a tremendous cultural upheaval where men have rejected the word of God. And a time where, again, government legislatures are imposing this kind of chaos upon our lives by enacting laws and legislation demanding that we get in line and follow all their mandates, or more properly, follow all their madness, and to begin to think like they think and talk as they talk. And if we do not, then we'll be canceled, we'll be marginalized, sent away, perhaps fined, and maybe even imprisoned. And on top of that, we've got the whole situation still going on around us in the, in the virus world. This COVID thing has been going on for over a year now. And again, with that situation, government continues to encroach more and more upon the realm of the church, uh, attempting to exercise authority in a realm that is not theirs to exercise that authority. 
I gave a couple examples last week of uh, Grace Community Church in California and their situation. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, James Coates and the Grace Life Fellowship up there in Alberta, Canada. So with all of this upheaval around us, last week we started turning our attention uh, to these kinds of questions, asking us, uh, what is our role and response in society? Why, why are we here? What's our role? What's our response? And what's our response to government as Christians? Now, look, I'll give you a headline. Bad, bad, bad government's nothing new, right? It's been around for a long time. Bad rulers are not unique to our time. But the question is, how do we honor the king? And at the same time, how do we honor the king of kings? That's always the question for us who live in two kingdoms, right? We, we live in the kingdom of the world. We're in the kingdom of the world. We're living in it, but we're really of the kingdom of heaven. So, so how do we honor the king at the same time honor the king of kings? And, and what I want us to understand and to think about this issue is from a biblical standpoint. Again, what is from a biblical standpoint the Christian's response to government? And from a biblical standpoint, what is the role of government? Is there ever a time when civil government should be disobeyed or not obeyed? Or are we just to blindly follow everything that civil government tells us to do? And then again, what do we do when government begins to encroach upon the church and starts to take away our rights and impose upon us unbiblical standards? What should we do? How do, how do we react? These are the kind of questions I want us to think about and again attempt to find biblical answers to them. And again, I think this portion of Scripture is very helpful. Right, Verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those who or those which exist, are established by God. And again, we want to think on these issues from a biblical standpoint, not from a North American standpoint, and most certainly not from a viewpoint of being citizens of the United States. We are, but that's a secondary position. We want to think on these issues as being citizens of the kingdom of God, because that's really the kingdom we belong to. Now, we acknowledge right up front with all these kind of situations a tremendous amount of biblical wisdom that we need to deal with some of the situations that are facing us now currently and uh, probably some that are coming down the road very uh, soon in the near future. And I prefaced the whole discussion last time before we got into the text by asking ourselves the question, and I'm going to ask it again, what has God called us to do in the church, right? What has God called us as the church to do in in the world? And I think that's a preliminary uh, question that has to be asked to begin to understand and, uh, and come to a biblical answer of this other issue. As I read the Bible, I don't see anywhere that God has called us to change the culture. I know that's very popular today, but I don't see any example in the Bible that God has called us to change the culture. What God has called us to do is to represent him in this culture. That's what God has called us to do, to represent him in the culture. And if we represent Christ in the culture, then those things that are his primary concern must be our primary concern if we're Christians, if we're followers of Christ. His primary concern when he came into a world that was full of corruption just like ours is and all kinds of perversion just like ours is, his primary concern was the the souls of men. His primary concern was the gospel of grace. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to secure the salvation of the sinner. And in turn, he has left us as the church with that message and that same responsibility to speak to men and women around us the truth that God desires to save men. That God desires to save men from the consequences of their sin. He wants to reconcile them through himself and the old, or to himself, and the only way that, that reconciliation can occur is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first and foremost, as believers left in this world, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent our sovereign. We are from another nation, another kingdom. We represent our sovereign in, our, uh, in his interest over our own interest, right? And his interest, again, is the gospel. 
He wants men to know that there's forgiveness of sin and salvation found, and it's found only through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said this last time, but I'll say it again. If we get caught up in, if we get caught up into the issues of this world and abandon the message that gives life to the eternal soul in favor of something that is temporal, that's a bad exchange. Right? If you start getting caught up into trying to change the culture and set aside the gospel, it's a bad exchange because we've been left here to tell truth for men so that our souls might be saved. And if we get caught up in the affairs of the world, temporal issues, and forget the eternal, we've prostituted the purpose for why God has left us here in this world of darkness. We are not to transform the culture. We are to be light in this culture of darkness. And we've got to get that right because there's a whole lot of people that got it wrong and are trying to get you to come to their side to get it wrong. Jesus Christ didn't overturn slavery. Jesus Christ didn't overturn the brothels. Jesus Christ didn't try to bring some kind of equality to the culture he came into. He came to seek and save the lost. He came for the soul. Because he understood that if a man's heart is reached, if his life is transformed from the inside out, his activities on the external will change. If we just try to become moral uh, police and try to change external circumstances and external uh, uh, situations, we'll never reach the issue. The issue is the heart of man. That's what needs to be addressed. And the only way that you can address that is through the truth. Right? We can't get caught up into the issues of the world. Secondly, I said, <clears throat> as uh, the church, we are the pillar and the support of the truth. Right? First Timothy 3.15. The pillar and the support of the truth. Have you noticed there's not a whole lot of truth-telling going on in the world? Right? They are not going there. They have no desire for the truth. They want you to come to their side, whatever their side is. They want you to follow their agenda, whatever that might be. They want you to listen to them, vote for them, etc., and so forth. Truth is not what they're into. We as the church are the pillar and the support of the truth. We're to hold the truth high. We're to speak the truth in love. Because what men and women need who are trapped in this kingdom of darkness, in that current system that is all around us, that power uh, all around us, what do they need? They need to come to a knowledge of the truth. Right? They're held captive by the uh, supreme liar. They need to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what men and women desperately need, and we're the only truth-tellers in the entire world. Now, after saying all that, I'll say this. I get it. I do. I live here. I get it. I get that we're all upset with the way things are going. We don't like the rapid change. We're always talking. I mean, I can't believe how fast things are changing. I get it. We don't like the decline of the culture. But perhaps, as we make that statement, the next question we ought to make or ask ourselves is why? Why is that? Why are we upset with the rapid decline of the culture? Are we upset with the way things are going around us because we see that we are suddenly no longer going to be able to live a comfortable Christian life? Or are we upset with the unrighteousness that we're seeing all around us promoted by this culture because unrighteousness is an affront to the holiness and to the beauty of our God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the fact that we are upset with the way things are going a holy righteousness, a holy anger, or a personal anger because this whole thing is going to rapidly, immensely inconvenience us and change our lives and our manner of living it's probably important for each one of us to stop for a moment and do a gut check and ask ourselves, what's the truth? 
What's the truth of the, that question on a personal level? Because the reality is we live in a dark world. It's getting darker and darker. And why would we, as children of the light, children of the truth, why would we expect this dark world of unsaved people to act any other way than they are acting? Why would we expect them to think any other way than they are thinking? And why are we angry with those around us who are trapped in Satan's kingdom when in reality they need to be set free from his lies and come to a knowledge of the truth and the only way they can do that is to be met to is to be introduced to the person of truth and the only people on the planet who know the person of the truth is us we got to stop and think sinners are in need of grace who in the world can tell a sinner where they can find grace sinners are in need of hope who in the world can tell sinners where they can find that kind of hope where they can find truth. Again, isn't that why we're here? Isn't that our purpose? And if we believe that God is sovereign, and he is, if we believe that God is sovereign, then I would suggest to us, listen, that God has made us for this time. God has made us for this time. We are, as God's people, exactly where he wants us to be, as light in a dark world. We are the people who, again, hold out hope to people, So they, too, can, by the way of God's goodness and God's mercy, escape the corruption that they are a part of and the coming wrath that will come upon those who reject God's mercy through the person of Jesus Christ. And just maybe all of the insanity and the chaos and the confusion and all the trampling down of our own rights might provide us an opportunity as we speak the truth in love to show men where they might find hope, and where they might find help. Maybe if God is sovereign, we are the people for this time. Now put a a mark there, because we're going to come right back to it, I mean very quickly, and I just want you to be reminded of what what Paul told uh, uh, Titus. Titus uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, malign no one, be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Here's the reason. Verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. We used to be just like them. Why are we different? Why have we come to a knowledge of the truth? Because God in his kindness has exposed us to the truth. God in his kindness, by mercy, has saved us uh, to himself. Not according to our own deeds, but according to the person of Jesus Christ. I was thinking this week about the injustice that's going on 
with our brother James Cote. Now he's, he's in prison there in Canada uh, because he faithfully obeyed his conscience and he faithfully obeyed God's command to shepherd his church and he refused to turn people away who wanted to come to worship. That's why he's in jail, because he refused to turn away God's people who wanted to come to worship. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder what kind of conversations he's having. Right? I know he's in solitary, at least to what I've heard, but there are jailers around him, so he's got to be talking to somebody. So I wonder what kind of a conversations he's having in prison there with the others around him who don't know Christ. I wonder if our brother uh, uh, James is uh, talking about himself and how poorly he is being treated by the Canadian government and how he is suffering and all the suffering he is going through and how unjust this whole situation is and how he's being wrongly dealt with. Or... Might he be taking the opportunity that he has to be pointing men and women to Christ? Now I would suggest, probably don't have to think about that too long, uh, the tone and direction of his conversations. Since it was out of love for Christ and out of love for his people, he was willing to suffer whatever penalty the Canadian government would impose upon him for the privilege of being faithful to his Savior and loving Christ's people who he had charge over as their shepherd. One of the other subpoints that I made last week was the fact of the sovereignty of God over all the events of uh, life. And again, maybe just James Coates as God's man for the hour in Canada to bring attention to the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ because most certainly his imprisonment is doing that very thing. The gospel is going out. Again, his wife's being interviewed on just about every media. I mean, I think I've heard her like three times in the last week. Different national media outlets. So maybe... James uh, Coates is God's man for the hour in Canada. And again, if God is sovereign and he is, perhaps we are God's men and women for the hour here in our city, in our state of Ohio, from all the various cities and neighborhoods that we come from, and all the varieties of different people that we have the opportunity to interact with who are, for the most part, trapped in in, uh, Satan's kingdom of lies. If we can just maintain a biblical perspective on the whole issue around us, that life, listen, life really is not about us, but life really is about God and it's about the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that God has called us to himself out of his mercy and he's called us to represent him and to be truth tellers in a society that desperately needs truth and to remind ourselves that we've been called to die to ourselves, to take up his cross and to follow him. And to remember that the battle around us is really an ideological battle. Right? Bruce talked about it this morning, right out of that Ephesians passage. It's an ideological battle. People are trapped in lies. And again, they are living in the kingdom of darkness, and they desperately need to be freed from his realm. And the only way that they can be freed from that realm, that kingdom of lies, is to be exposed to the truth. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 says, We who walk by the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Right? We, we, we've been called to a task. It was in one of the lines. I almost brought it up with him, but I didn't. One of the lines in one of the songs we sang this morning, we've been called to a task. I'm paraphrasing, but we've been called to a task that we're not powerful enough to carry out. That's a good point to know. Because the power doesn't rest in our power, it rests in God's wisdom, God's power. 
We just represent him. We just tell the truth. It's the gospel that transforms people's lives, not your argument. Not your intellect. Right? Our intellect doesn't win the day. It's the power of Christ and the transformational truth found in the power of the gospel. That's the power in the God, of God unto salvation. To us who are saved, it's wisdom. To those who are passing away, it's foolishness. It's our offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit. We need to wield that truth and present that truth and let God deal with the hearts of men. We're to be truth-tellers. We're not the Holy Spirit. We're not the guys who bring conviction of sin and transformation of life. That's not our realm. It belongs to somebody else and the Godhead, not us. All right? Now, go back to, to Romans here, and I'll start in the, working our way through the text. I began last time asking the question, where does authority come from? Right? Where, where does authority come from? Romans 13.1. Verse 1 says, There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So the most fundamental issue with regards to this situation uh, when it comes to us relating to government is understand that all authority comes from God. I took us to... Genesis 1, right? Uh, 1, 1, right? In the beginning, God. God is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate power. Therefore, all authority in this world is a delegated authority from God himself. Excuse me. And everyone needs to realize that. Everyone needs to realize that all the power they have, the authority they have, is a delegated responsibility. Both rulers and subjects need to recognize that. And every person, with the exception of God himself, is under the authority of someone. With the exception of God himself, every person is under the authority of someone. So I thought it might be helpful if I just give you some examples. And you'll go, oh, yeah, I get that. I, I see that now, right? There's five different spheres in which we all live in. Five different spheres. Number one, on a personal level, we're all under the authority of God. Right? Every man is under the authority of God. We're all expected to obey him, to submit ourselves to him, and view the fact that one day we're all going to stand before him and give an account for our life and our service to him. So on a personal level, we're all, we are all under the authority of God. Number two... We all live in some kind of a family, right? We all grew up, I'm assuming, unless you grew up on the streets or you were thrown out in the, the wilderness like Tarzan when you were two or something like that. I'm assuming we all grew up in a family of some sort, whether it was good or bad or ind that's indifferent. But there's some kind of authority, right? Within that family, there's a responsibility to submit themselves to the head of that family unit, usually the father, not always, but usually the father. And in that kind of family unit, the father is the head of the wife, and the Bible says, therefore, he is to love Christ as Christ has loved the church. The wife is to submit herself as the helper to her husband. She submits herself to her husband as she submits herself to the Lord. And then the children in that system are to obey their parents uh, as in the Lord, right? So there's an order, a structure, an authority, a government, if you want, even in the home. Number three, we live as members together in the church. We live as members together in the church, right? So God has established a government in the church. He's given the office of the elders, those who rule over and those who are uh, we are to submit to and uh, obey as they watch over our souls and they will give an account for their uh, leadership uh, to God himself. Number four, and again, unless, there, unless there's some kind of unusual situation, most of us have to work if we want to eat, right? You got to work, you got to eat. So you have, a, uh, you have to submit yourself to your employer, uh, your, your uh, authority at you, uh, over you at work. And number five, the last, of course, is we live under uh, the sphere or the realm of the state. We all live in a government or under a government, whatever form it might take. So we all have a responsibility to that government to submit to its authority. So everybody in the world, save God himself, is under authority, uh, under the authority of God in the home, in the church, at work, and then in our country. So the question is, how do we respond to it? And we saw last time that the Bible commands us to be presently, continually 
willingly demonstrating a hard attitude of being in subjection to those who are in authority over us. Again, uh, verse uh, 1, let every person or every soul be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those which are established uh, exist are established by God. Be in subjection. Remember, that's that word hupotasso. It means we're to line up under, we're to subordinate to, we're to yield, voluntarily submit ourselves to those in authority over us. We're to line up under the authority because we realize the fact that God is the king over all, and he is the Lord of the entire earth. Right? He, he's the Lord of the entire earth. He, he's the ultimate authority. And again, all authorities under him have been delegated authority by him. They'll be held accountable by him to what they do, to the use of that authority. All rulers, therefore, are ministers of God, meaning they represent him. And again, they're going to be accountable to him. And when we have a hard attitude of biblical submission uh, towards authority, we are acknowledging the fact that God himself is the sovereign over not only the affairs of mankind, but over those governing authorities. It's an acknowledgement that God is sovereign, right? That God is able to accomplish his will through whomever he desires, whomever he has placed in a position of authority over us, whether they be good rulers or bad rulers. That's really not the issue. God is the issue. And a proper heart attitude towards, uh, towards authority acknowledges that fact that God is in charge. It's an acknowledgement of the fact that God works all things out to his glory and for the good of his people, the best of his people. Now, I told you last time that biblical submission does not necessarily mean blind obedience. There's a difference between obedience and submission. Obedience deals with performance. Submission deals with the attitude of your heart. Obedience deals with performance. Either do it or you don't do it. Submission deals with the attitude of your heart. How do you deal with that authority? Because there may be times when you cannot obey the authority over you. But even in your refusal to obey the authority over you, it must be with a hard attitude that respects the office which that person holds. Now, but before I can give you the reasons why, because everybody wants to know, tell me when I cannot obey. Everybody's always interested in that. Before I can tell you reasons why you can't obey the authority, I've got to give you five reasons why you must. Right? Five reasons why Christians are to submit to the governing authorities, and it's right here in the text. So here we go again, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Reason number one, why Christians are to submit to human government, governments ordained by God. Or, if you want it, government is by divine decree. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Again, human governments ordained by God himself. Human government exists for the benefit of society. Uh, Psalm 62.11 says, power belongs to God. That means all power belongs to God. Everything, everyone in the entire universe is subjection, in subjection to God's authority. Everyone. Everyone in the heavens, everyone on the earth, including Satan himself and all of Satan's angels, the demons are under absolute control and authority of God. Therefore, any kind of power that a person or a group of people may hold is a divinely delegated authority. No man has the right of power over another man which does not come from God. And God in his wisdom has permitted uh, even uh, his delegated authority, or God in his wisdom has permitted men to use his delegated authority for maintaining order on the earth. So again, it reminds us of the fact that God is the sovereign. He's the sovereign over the affairs of men. That he's well aware of the chaos we're living in. He's well aware of what's going on in the world. He's work, uh, well, uh, well aware of all of the, uh, uh, the insanity of trying to redefine everything. And again, the, the issue of uh, uh, homosexuality, the issue of 
transgenderism as a direct attack on the Word of God, the person of God. It goes back to Genesis 1.1. Either God created man male and female, or he didn't. And if you can say, well, no, God made a mistake with me, then what you're saying is God is not all wise, he's not very powerful, and he's not sovereign over my life, I'm sovereign over my own life. Well, you know, you can say that, but that's not true. What is true? We're to be truth-tellers. They say that out of kindness, out of love. That's not true. If you want to sit down, we can talk about it and help you think through these issues from a biblical level because that's what people need. God has permitted his delegated authority to be used over the earth to maintain um, uh, order. Nothing happens apart from his knowledge. Nothing happens apart from his will. And and the world that we're living in is fallen. It's a world, again, greatly uh, influenced by the evil one the ruler of this world system, Satan himself. But in the system, God is still sovereign. And we can go to bed at night and sleep. You don't have to worry about the pandemic. Pandemic A that just came and we lived through for an entire year. Pandemic B and the new strain that's coming that's going to destroy you know, life on the planet as we know it. Unless you wear seven masks so you don't become a spreader of the germ. You wear seven masks, you won't have to worry about spreading anything. <laughs> right? Give me a vaccine that just knocks me out. Right? God is sovereign. God is sovereign without exception or limitation. And for his purposes and his wisdom, he's permitted Satan to exercise a vast but limited power over the world and over the affairs of men. And while Satan can't make men sin, Certainly since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, he's used every means, Satan has used every means at his disposal to try to indulge men's sinful passions and lusts and to promote lies on every level. So consequently, what you get through the world and the history of men ruling over other men, you have times you have very poor governments. Perhaps times where governments are even highly influenced by demonic forces, such as the government of Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong. And while all power comes from God and all authority is delegated to man from God, how well or how poorly men use that delegated authority is a uh, delegated authority is a completely different issue. The point here is that all authority, all power comes from God and God alone. God is the one who's instituted human government as a decree, as part of his plan for fallen mankind. Now again, while we might not understand why God does things or allows certain things to happen at times, uh, again, the very worst and, and wicked governments of, and rulers to exist. We know that, again, God uses them for his sovereign purposes. And again, God always promotes his own glory through these, these uh, people. Sometimes God allows wickedness and wicked rulers in order to punish wicked nations. That's true in history. And sometimes, listen, sometimes God uses evil to contrast and put, on his, put his goodness on display. Then have a choice. You want the kingdom of darkness? You want the kingdom of light? The kingdom of darkness is bringing you this, all kind of chaos, confusion, death, destruction, misery, unhappiness. The kingdom of light is providing you with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Choose. All right? There's a whole, there's a whole uh, group of uh, our brethren that call themselves free willers. Okay, you want free will? There you go. Choose. And all that does is expose their hearts, right? Governments ordained by God. And again, it says, um, he who resists government. And the, the word resist there in the text means to arrange in battle form, right? To, to oppose or set yourself against someone. 
So in essence, biblically, when you resist authority, you're setting yourself up in battle against God. You're opposing God himself, which is probably a pretty bad position to put yourself in, I would suggest. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul says this, The God who made the world and all things in it, since the Lord is heaven of the earth, heaven and earth, and does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by him in hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life and breath to all things. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 17, He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Paul says, look, God has appointed government. Every government that ever has existed, every government that ever will exist, he, they are there by his sovereign decree. He is the one who determines their times. He is the one who determines their rise and their fall. He is the one that appoints the boundaries of their physical, uh, geographical location, but he's also the one that appoints their, uh, uh, the, the boundaries of their time. Right? He, he is the one that sets the boundaries of, of, around that, that uh, unit in which they will function and exist. Therefore, the form of the government really isn't uh, an issue. Monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, uh, communism, it's really irrelevant. Because God in his sovereignty allows men to be born into each of these governmental systems or under these systems, and God in his kindness saves men out of all these different kinds of systems. So the form really isn't the issue. The form really isn't the issue as much as it is for God's people to have a right heart attitude towards that governing authority, to be submissive, to be obedient. Right? Wherever the, the ruler is and wherever it's possible uh, to that ruler in that government. Right? So we realize that if we put, put ourselves uh, in uh, opposition, if we resist government, then we are in rebellion against God. Now, the third reason that God has, uh, as we as Christians are to uh, submit ourselves to authority, uh, uh, to human authority, as those who resist human authority or government, we're going to be punished. Right? If, if we we are to submit ourselves as Christians to the human authority, the government authority, or we're going to be punished. Because verse 2 goes on and says, Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation to themselves. Right? Government exists by God's divine decree, and uh, to oppose it is to place yourself in rebellion to God. If you resist that ordained God-ordained governmental authority, you can expect to be punished by that government itself for your rebellion. Now, I don't think Paul's talking about God's direct judgment on those who oppose authority, but rather government itself is an authority and it has a responsibility, the right given to them by God to punish those who break uh, his laws. So probably don't need to go into a great deal of discussion on this issue or explanation. It's pretty self-evident. Speed limit says 20, you're doing 65, you can expect to be pulled over, right? It's, it's just that simple. The laws of the land are going to punish those who break the rules. Fourth reason why Christians are to submit themselves to human government or the human authorities is that government serves to restrain evil. Verse uh, 3. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. So again, if you're an honest citizen, then you have no fear uh, for, uh, you have no need to fear from uh, the keepers of law and order, right? However, if you're a dishonest citizen, then you probably ought to rightly fear the governing authorities. Now, obviously, Paul's speaking in general terms. Because he suffered uh, at the hands of rulers, he was abused and punished uh, for no other reason except that he was doing good and promoting the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. But as a general rule throughout history, even the most wicked governments, uh, for those who have obeyed the laws of the land, rulers, for the most part, left them alone. <clears throat> even in the worst governments, or the, uh, under the most wicked rulers, you have authority, and authority exists because it has to put down crimes committed against the other people, right? Such as murder and theft. Now, in general, you do what is right, you have no reason to fear the government. Do what is wrong, you have a right to fear the government, fear punishment, because they are authority over you. 
Even in a fallen world, even in a fallen government, uh, secular rulers, they know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. They know that part of their duty is to punish bad behavior and promote good behavior. Even unregenerate authorities realize that for society to function and succeed, it cannot live in a constant state of wanton evil. Unstopped murder, dishonesty, sexual perversion, violence. They know that it's going to destroy the people. Good behavior is essential, right? You just can't have chaos and anarchy everywhere. Good behavior is essential for any nation's self-preservation. And without the restraint of evil and promotion of good, society can't survive. And eventually it will self-destruct. Now, I'll just pause for a moment to say those people in our government that are promoting anarchy, right, let it go and just let it free and burn down every city. Why are they doing that? Because they want to give people freedom. No, because what they're going to do at some point is they're going to come and put a clamp on it and a clamp on you, and then they're going to exercise authority. Chaos cannot run forever without a society breaking down, and even evil government officials know that. You cannot exist in absolute chaos. Somebody will rise to the top and be in charge, I guarantee you. That's the history of mankind. Fifth reason why we as Christians should submit ourselves to human government or the human authorities over us is that government serves to promote good. Right? Government serves to promote good. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for your good. Now, again, God has uh, 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 ordained human government for the promotion of the people, the welfare of the people. And in general, in history, throughout history, law-abiding citizens have been treated favorably uh, by their government. Don't come get me after the sermon. Well, what about this? What about this? Okay, I just said in general, right? I got it, all right? Most governments, even bad governments, don't normally persecute those under their rule who are doing what the government asks them to do that are obeying the law, rather they uh, will receive praise from that, that government, right? Just stay in line, do your thing, obey, and, and you'll be fine. Now, I told you previously that that phrase uh, where it says, verse 4, it's a minister of God for you. A minister of God really is the word we get our English word deacon. So government really is a servant, an administrator who comes around and carries out the command of another. So God has ordained government not only to restrain evil, but to promote good in the people. So their authority really serves God. They represent him. Whatever government is, they represent him. They serve him, and they carry out his divine ordained command to promote the good. Now, they may not personally realize that that is their role, that they're playing, because most government authorities don't know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, that's the function biblically they perform under God's sovereignty and God's system. For example, while it's true Christians are persecuted, they were persecuted under, under uh, uh, Roman emperors, Roman emperors also provided Paul with protection for a long time, right? He was saved, his life was saved on a, a, a number of different occasions from his fellow countrymen. So the Roman government was evil, it was a pagan uh, in, in nature, it didn't know the true and the living God. Nevertheless, it acted as a minister of God for good. It served to save Paul's life so that he could do what? Declare the gospel. Right? He had freedom to declare the gospel, explain the gospel. So again, as Christians, whatever country we find ourselves in, instead of joining the, the revolution, those who want to join or want to oppose the government, and, and again, while we may even have a legitimate concern about our governors, we should be thankful that God has given government to maintain order. We should be thankful that God has given government to, uh, ma- to, to, rest- to restrain evil. We should be thankful that God has given government to promote good. 
We need to see that that government authority, again, whatever forms it comes in, whatever kind of uh, uh, governmental authority, really is a means of God's mercy to men. Because without it, we'd be in complete chaos. You think we're in chaos? We'd be in complete chaos, right? It'd be like at the end of the book of Judges where everybody's doing, every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. And again, that's nothing more than chaos, anarchy, right? And, and certainly that kind of system can't promote good or the welfare of the people. Now, again, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but uh, in countries where there's absolute chaos, everything breaks down and a coup comes. Oh, good, I hated him. We're going to get rid of him and get somebody else, right? So a coup comes and takes place, right? <coughs> Excuse me, we again have to realize that countries don't exist without government. So what happens when a coup comes is what? Another government comes. Another group of authorities come. Another group of rulers put themselves in the place of the last one, right? They either take them down physically or or whatever, the coup occurs, and a new set of authority comes, because men cannot live without government. Human governments are always going to be imperfect, because they're governed by imperfect people, fallible people, right? But even in, the, in, in, even in, in that whole situation, right, uh, we realize that even better governments are probably going to at times make decisions that aren't always ones we agree with, right? But we can't rest in the fact, again, when we talk about government in general, God's sovereign. He uses even fallen men for the promotion of his good. We need to understand that. We need to understand that authority is a gift of God for the promotion of good amongst God's people. And we need to see, again, that all authority comes in that line. All delegated authority from God for good. That's God's design. Now, what are five reasons, right? Uh, the Christians should submit to government. Governments are ordained by God for our government. Or our, uh, or our government is de- de- uh, designed by divine decree. God has ordained, government is ordained by God. Number two, resistance to human government is rebellion against God. Number three, those who resist human authority or human government are going to be punished. Number four, government serves to restrain evil. Number five, government serves to promote good. So those are the five headings in case you missed them or I missed one, right? Now that we covered all that, then we can get to things that you want to hear, right? Um, is it ever proper for us to disobey government. Well, I'm going to tell you three reasons. Three, three categories, three times. Is it proper to disobey governing authorities? Gave them to you last time, we're going to go through them again. Number one, when government commands what God forbids. That's a permission. That's when you can uh, uh, disobey government. When government commands what God forbids. Number two, when government forbids what God commands. Right? When government forbids what God commands. And number three, when government commands what is not theirs to command. When government commands what's not theirs to command. So when is it proper to disobey governing authorities? Number one, when government commands what God forbids. Can you give me an example? Yes, I can. I knew you'd ask me that question. So out of the Old Testament, there was a time when Pharaoh uh, of Egypt gave orders to kill all the Israelite babies. Uh, he gave that order to the Jewish midwives. Two of the midwives in the story there in the book of Exodus uh, 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 Sifra and Pua knew that murder was wrong, so they refused to comply with the monarch's decree. Exodus 1, verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them to do, but let the boys live. And this uh, scripture says, because the women were faithful to the Lord's command not to murder, he affirmed their civil disobedience. Uh, Exodus 1, 20, it says he dealt uh, with them, uh, with the midwives and the people multiplied and they grew very um he dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily right so he approved their rebellion because 
the government was asking them to disobey what God commanded, or what God forbids, right? God forbids murder, and the government was, forbid, or was commanding them to murder. They said they wouldn't do that. See the, second, the same thing in 1 Samuel 20. Uh, Jonathan refuses to obey his father Saul's command uh, to murder David. The book of Daniel, uh, another Old Testament example, three significant accounts of justifiable disobedience against governing authorities. So put a mark there and turn back to Daniel. I just want you to see this. So go back to the Old Testament, to the, to the book of Daniel. Find the Psalms and keep going right, or keep going left. Psalms, I'm sorry, keep going right. Find Psalms and keep going right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 1. You're familiar with the story, Daniel chapter 1. <clears throat> Daniel's got his three buddies with him, his three countrymen, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. They're exiles in a foreign land. They're ordered by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to eat a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, Daniel 1.5. <clears throat> the chief of the officials is a guy named Aspenaz, he was ordered to carry out that duty, uh, yet these mon- young men go to him and politely decline to do so. Otherwise, they would be defiling themselves by, before their God. They would be breaking Mosaic law- laws, dietary laws. Daniel 1, verse 8. <clears throat> but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not, might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion on the side of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then he would make me forfeit my head to the king. Now, instead of demanding, protesting, jumping up and down, putting down the government, putting down Nebuchadnezzar, these guys just graciously go to the king's representative king's official, and they present him an option. Right? Uh, 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 Verse 11. Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, verse 12, please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence, uh, the appearance of uh, the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who'd been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food uh, and wine which they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As Finesse, we'd really like to obey you. We, we, we just can't, right? We, I mean, this whole thing violates our conscience. It violates uh, the clear command for us uh, from our God. Uh, we respect you. We want to submit your, ourselves to your authority. But we have to obey God rather than men, right? We're not going to eat the king's choice food. You can do to us according to how you see fit, right, uh, if we're ill in appearance, but we're offering you this option, right? So it's graciously, it's humbly, it's the right heart attitude. Realizes, again, authority comes from God, even when you're carried off into captivity. Hey, God, God, God is actually sovereign over the affairs of men when you're taken off into captivity? Yeah, because he happens, happens to be the sovereign. He happens to know what's going on down here. He happens to be taking his people and put them in the right spot in the right situation for her to get the message out. Amazing. Maybe we should not try to be God. I concur. 
and amen. Let God be God. You just have the right heart attitude. So again, they realize there's no authority except from God, even in captivity. They humble themselves to that authority. Uh, again, whoever that authority is, they're not acting on their own. They're acting as a, uh, that authority is acting, even Nebuchadnezzar and his servants are acting as instruments in the hand of God. Right? God alone is the sovereign one. So again, Daniel didn't obey the king's command, but he sought another solution to the problem. And it's amazing that God graciously granted him favor. Why, why would Asphanaz do that? I don't know any other reason. You can come up with one better than this one. I think it's because God's sovereign. <laughs> That's the one I go to. God's sovereign. God's pointing out that sovereignty. How about over chapter 3? Chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar has made a golden image, stuck it out there in the plain, ordered everybody to uh, worship the golden image. Daniel 3, verse 4. The herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that moment that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. But these three fellows, just like in the previous situation, you know what they did in advance? This might be helpful for us in the time that we're living in. They made up their mind in advance that they wouldn't compromise. They made up their mind in advance that they were going to honor God no matter what. Right? They made up their mind. They're not going to worship this false God. They're going to obey God rather than obey men. They're not going to violate what God had commanded them to do or to not do, which is to worship false idols. But they would do indeed what God had commanded them to do, that is to worship him and worship him alone. Verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men who were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, it is, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Verse 15, Now if you're ready, at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Very well. But if you will not worship, you will be immediately cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? You know what? He's going to find out, I bet you. Faithful men who let God be God, faithful men who let God's sovereignty rule over their own lives so they might have opportunity to give testimony to truth. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They could not obey the command of the king. Right? They are respectful. They are willing to die at the hands of the king. And they are rather they were willing to die rather than to disobey their God, right? Let me tell you something else. You know why? Because this life is not all there is. One of the things that we've been caught up into in the lie of this culture in the last world with this virus is this life is all there is. And we have to preserve our life at the cost of absolutely everything. That's a lie. That's an absolute satanic lie. This life is not all. All there is, there's another life to come. And we as God's people better start thinking that way to realize that if we get caught up into this life is all there is, that kind of thinking comes from the pit. It doesn't come from God. God's sovereign over the affairs of men. God's sovereign over life. He gives it. He takes it away. These guys realize that there's, there's life beyond the one that they're living. So when is it right to disobey 
those in authority over us when they ask us to violate the, com the clear command of God. Third example, we won't look to it, I'll just re reference it, but it's in the uh, third uh, example of righteous civil disobedience the book of Daniel. It's a well-known story of Daniel and the lion's den. Right? He submitted himself to possible death at the, lions, uh, the jaws of the lions rather than to obey the king. Uh, Darius at the time to, uh, sought the uh, decree to keep him from worshiping the true God, Daniel chapter 6. Right? And God honored his wisdom. God honored his discernment of that faithful servant who faithfully adhered to the truth of God and rather than to fall down before the royal edict. Right? He worshiped God. I'm going to go and pray because that's what I do. Right? I'm going to let God deal with the consequences. I do what I do. I, I represent God in a pagan culture. Right? He did it with dignity. He did it with respect. You know, and Darius says, I got no choice. I got to throw you in. Okay, throw me in. You know, and it turned out the way God wanted it to turn out, right? Obviously, he didn't get eaten. When is it right to disobey those in authority? Number one, when government commands what, govern when government commands what God forbids, <clears throat> right? We don't worship false idols, right? Number two, when government forbids what God commands. That's part of uh, the example there in Daniel 6, but quickly turn to the New Testament, <clears throat> Acts chapter 4. When government forbids what God commands, now, you know the story here in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John got up to the temple to, to worship. They encounter a, a lame man whom they had healed. And after the people who uh, saw this lame man, now he's walking, leaping, praising God, uh, their attention is drawn to Peter. And Peter begins to preach about Christ. Peter says it's Christ who's the one who's responsible for making uh, this man whole. And he tells them about Christ being the, the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. And he told them that they should repent from their sin and turn to Christ. The priests hear this conversation along with the captain of the, of the temple garden, the Sadducees. And, and they decide what they heard. They're going to take these guys, put their hands on them and put them in jail. The next day, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, uh, call them in front of them. They examine them by the, by the elders, the rulers, and, and they give an answer. They want an answer for uh, what power has healed this man. And again, the text says, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. He begins speaking about Christ. He says that Christ is the one who's responsible for this healing. And, and he charges them rightly with killing Christ. And he proclaims again that God raised him from the dead. He tells them there's salvation in no other name under heaven given to by men by where, Mitch men, or by, why, by where men must be saved except Jesus Christ. Now, the rulers, they recognize these guys are untrained, they're uneducated, and they give this answer, but they don't like what they hear. Right? They know it's going to be detrimental to their personal religious political career. They don't like it. Right? They don't want the, somebody to come in and mess up their own personal religion and their system. So they ask themselves, what shall we do? Acts chapter 4, verse 16. Saying, Acts 4, 16, what shall we do with these men? For in fact, that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Right? We, we can't stop speaking. Go over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse uh, 28. Peter again has a run-in with the council. And the high priest questioned him, saying, uh, Acts 5, verse 28, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. So when is it right to disobey, to disobey the authority over us? 
Number one, when government commands what God forbids. Number two, when government forbids what God commands. So Peter and John are confronted by the Jewish leaders. They're given strict orders not to speak about Jesus as the Christ, but God has commanded them to speak about Jesus as the Christ. He's commanded them to do that very thing. So what should these men do in this situation? Should they protest, start a rebellion, jump up and down? No, they just make a choice. We're going to subject ourselves to you. We're going to be respectful to you. We're going to give you honor. We're going to address you in the proper tone. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, but we can't stop speaking about Christ. We must obey God rather than men. And in essence, it's applied. We're willing to submit ourselves to whatever judgment you want to render over us. That's implied. Right? They are in submission. They, they realize that the rulers over them are there by God's authority. Nobody in the text is jumping up and down saying, you don't have the right to do that. Nobody's doing that. They recognize the authority, yet in this instance, they can't obey that authority. Because the rulers are asking them to do what God, who is in even higher authority, their authority, God himself has commanded them to do. We must obey God rather than men. When is it proper to disobey governing authorities? When government commands what God forbids. Number two, when government forbids what God commands. Now, for the most part, Christians ought to obey authorities over us because they're from God. However, when we're put in a position where governing authorities uh, to tell us to do that which God forbids or forbids us to do that which God commands, we have to be willing to follow God, to follow God rather than men, then accept the consequences. Right? We have to do it with the right heart attitude. It's got to be a, uh, an attitude of submission. Uh, and again, I wish I could obey you, but I can't because God, a higher authority in my life, has commanded me to do this or told me not to do that. Right? And then I'm willing to suffer whatever consequences. I'll just leave it into God's hands. I'm going to throw you in that fire. No God can save you. Well, I guess there is a God who could save you. Right? There's not three men in the furnace. There's actually four. Where's that guy? The one looking like the Son of God. Right? Let God be God. Now, the last category. Number three. When is it proper to disobey governing authorities? Number three, when government commands what is not theirs to command. When government commands what is not theirs to command. And to be really honest with you, I feel really bad because this is exactly where I left you off last time. Right? When government commands what is not theirs to command. And we began to talk last time about the fact that while we are subject ourselves to government, there's limits on government. There's limits on government authority. And again, I already told you, God has established within society three institutions or three realms of government. You have the family, you have the church, and then you have the state. And in each institution has its own sphere of authority, its own jurisdiction that has to be respected. The father has authority in the home. But the little caveat, he has authority in his own home, not somebody else's home. Church elders have authority in their church, not somebody else's church. They have a limited delegated authority that God has given to them, and that authority is over the matters of the church that relate to the church. God has given to government, civil government, the task of oversight, of protecting the peace and promoting uh, the welfare and the well-being of people. God has not granted civil authority, uh, civil government authority over doctrine and practice and polity of the church. God has not given civil authority that, that, that authority. Just like the church doesn't have authority to meddle in the affairs of a family and override parental authority, government authorities have no right to interfere with ecclesiastical matters in a way that undermines or disregards God-given authority to pastors and elders. 
And when any one of these institutions exceeds their bounds of jurisdiction, then it's the duty of the others to curtail that overreach, to inform them that they're out of bounds. When government officials issue orders regulating worship, such as bans on singing, attendance, prohibiting people to gather together in services, they have stepped out of their bounds of legitimate authority. They have stepped out of their legitimate bounds of authority that God has ordained, and they need to be addressed and corrected on that issue. For civil government to put restrictions on matters of worship and attendance is, again, outside their lane. It's outside their sphere of authority that God has granted to them. Because the scripture commands God's people to gather, to meet. Not forsaking our own assembly is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing nearer. God wants his people to gather together. You can't be the church, the called out ones, if you're separated. For a year, some people have been on, on uh, the Zoom, never once partaking of communion which we hold as, a, as an important principle, an important uh, institution of our worship. We gather together to take the Lord's Supper. Can't do that by Zoom. God has not given human government the authority to step in in ecclesiastical matters and separate what God has brought together. They exercise authority where they don't have authority. We're commanded to meet. The argument of the government, of course, is they're only trying to save lives. They're only trying to protect your health. That's outside their realm of authority. And next week, Lord willing, uh, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Genesis 1. And I'm going to point out to you the fact the government from God, the government's authority is not to protect our health. Government's authority is to protect our rights, our God-given and alienable rights. This country doesn't give us, by way of constitution, the right to worship. We have the right to worship because God has called us to worship. Whatever the government does, we've got to get the order right. God is the ultimate authority. And again, protecting our health is not within the realm or the jurisdiction of the federal government. We live in a fallen world. People actually get sick and die. There's one who gives life. There's one who takes it away. The authority over life is not the government. It is God. And for a government that promotes the murder of somewhere between 800,000 and a million children every year to try to say, we're only here to protect your health, the antennas need to go up and go, really? And for that same government that promotes the murder of children and the mutilation of young children's bodies to say, we're only here to help, you have to question if they're telling you the truth. Not only on that issue, but on any issue. Right? If they're willing to, to violate the command of not murdering, what makes you think they're not willing to violate the command of not lying? And we just believe everything they say, hook, line, and sinker, because Dr. So-and-so tells us, and he knows everything. Yes, yes, I'll line up. I'll get the shot. Yes, yes, I'll stay in my house. Yes, yes, I'll wear 12 masks. Whatever you want me to do, doctor. Even after I get vaccinated. It's not the realm of authority biblically that God has given to the government. God has called us as people to worship him, to gather together physically to do so. Now those people, because there's a bunch of these people who, who say, well, you know, uh, you know, when you gather together, 
These are people in the church. When you got the world does it all the time, but these people in the church, when you when you gather together, you're 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 unloving. You're putting people's lives at risk. Okay. I challenge that line of thinking personally. Is it more loving to gather to meet in obedience to Christ, that God might be honored and Christ worshipped publicly, that people might know Him? and have an opportunity to sit under the teaching of God's word and respond to the gospel, is that more loving or is hiding and never gathering together more loving? People have choices. You want to come, come. I think you should. If you don't want to come, stay away. It's that simple. But people in the church can't tell me it's more loving if I stay away, if we all stay away. I would say that's not true. It's more loving to be light in the world and declare the truth in the gospel. It sets men free. Because life and time is not the ultimate issue. Your eternal destiny is the ultimate issue. And if you happen to not get the, the virus and happen to not get this and not get that, again, one day you're going to die. So you didn't die of the COVID. Great, got run over by a truck. You're still dead. It's pointed out a man wants to die and then comes a judgment, right? Can you stand before God? And the only way that you can do that is if you understand the person of Jesus Christ, that he alone is the answer for mankind's problem. He alone is the answer for the rebellion. So when governments come and they try to suspend or limit or put restrictions on the gathering together of God's people and God has commanded us to meet, they've exceeded their legal, biblically legal limitations. They're outside of their jurisdiction, right? When they try to prohibit us from God's people to meet, when they try to prohibit our brother James Coates from not turning people away from worship, they're out of the lane and they need to be called on it. Lord willing, that's what we'll go to next time. I'll just get right into when government commands what is not theirs to command. We need to disobey. Now look, I know that not everybody in the room is going to agree with me. I got it. But I want you to think on these issues biblically. And I want you to ask again as we continue to work through this, what does God's word say? What is the realm of responsibility for government? And then I pray that we graciously can encourage each other. Even if we don't agree, that we be gracious and kind towards each other on this issue.